scripture passage this morning is found in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come with grateful hearts, echoing the words of Mary, that you who are mighty have done great things for us. Holy is your name. Father, we come to you this morning with requests and petitions. This morning we want to pray for the people, the cities, the towns affected by the storms this weekend, particularly those in Kentucky. We pray for those who have lost loved ones, who have lost their homes, their churches, their workplaces. Seemingly their entire lives have been decimated. Father, I pray that you would, by your people in those areas, provide hope. I pray that this would be a reminder to us as well as them that life is fleeting and at any moment it can be taken from us. I pray the churches in that area would be strong, that they would be reminded of their hope and that they would show that hope to their neighbors. Father, we also want to express our gratitude this morning for the members of Southside and particularly those who serve so faithfully in a variety of fashions. We have gifted members who regularly and willingly and joyfully use their gifts for the benefit of the rest of us. We thank you for lavishing on us your grace through these volunteers who serve on our ministry teams. 
We pray that they would be encouraged by their ministry. They would see the good and the fruit that comes from it. But Father, I pray that we would be satisfied by your approval. We would be satisfied by you simply saying that we are being faithful. But we also ask that you would be kind to give our volunteers evidences of grace and visible fruit from the work of their hands. Father, we also want to pray for our members, particularly over this holiday season as we travel to be with family members, as we gather with friends and neighbors, um, many of whom will not be, or are not believers. I pray that this season would not just be filled with celebration, but it would be filled with gospel conversations, that you would open doors for us, you would make it easy, that there would be softball opportunities to speak of Christ. And that we would see friends, families, neighbors come to hoping in the one who has come for us. And Father, lastly, we pray for our time this morning. I pray that as we look at this text, we would hear from you. That you would speak clearly by your spirit so that, as Jesus calls us to, we would rest in your son. We pray these things in his name. Amen. If you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. At one point in our country, these laws were on the books in various places. In Skamania County, Washington, it is illegal to kill Bigfoot. In Virginia, there is no hunting on Sundays unless you're killing raccoons. In North Dakota, you need permission, you need a permit to exterminate pigeons. In Jefferson, Missouri, it is possible to be fined for having too many garage sales. In Louisiana, who knows what's happening in Louisiana, bear wrestling is prohibited. And in New York, draw your own conclusions here, Wearing a mask can get you a fine unless you're going to a party. In Matthew chapter 12, we come to a dispute between Jesus and the Pharisees about a particular law. And this comes as a follow-up behind Jesus' announcement of his divine authority and his invitation to find rest. And so Matthew, wanting to ensure his audience understands what type of rest Jesus offers, what type of relief people can find in him, he gives us these two examples. And then he gives us a bit of commentary at the end. And the main idea of this passage, and so the main focus of our time this morning is this, that Jesus, as the Lord of the Sabbath, uses his authority to bring rest and hope to those who are burdened. Jesus, as the Lord of the Sabbath, uses his authority to bring rest and hope to those who are burdened. And we're going to look at that in three ways, broken apart by these three sections. The first is that Jesus wants to be merciful to you. Let's look at these first eight verses together. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, 
Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples are on the road in the course of their ministry, and hungry, they do the natural thing. They make a pit stop. Now, personally, I would have preferred an Arizona green tea and a cliff bar, but you take what you can get. And they're picking these heads off of the grain and they're rubbing it between their fingers and they're eating. But the action is not the problem for the Pharisees. It's the occasion that causes the conflict. It was on the Sabbath. And here we have the usual suspects, these big 12 refs doing what they do best, making themselves the center of attention. Yet again, they believe that Jesus has cornered, they believe they have cornered Jesus and they're suggesting that what he and his disciples are doing is in violation of the Sabbath law. Now, we need to briefly grasp what the Sabbath looked like. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the Sabbath was instituted in the Ten Commandments. It was to be set apart as a holy day, set aside from laborious work. It was a day to serve as a weekly reminder for God's people. It was a reminder of God's character, a reminder of God's provision and his law. It was intended for them to rest from their work just like God rested from his work of creation. Yet, Israel, in order to keep the Sabbath, they progressively set up fences further and further away from the center so as not to break this law, saying, well, if we don't come this far, then we certainly won't break the law. And this led to a very legalistic interpretation of the law. And differing differing interpretations led to disputes amongst the rabbis, disputes as to whether you could even eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath. Or whether you could break a dead twig off of a bush. In modern day Israel, you see the effects of this. They'll leave the lights on all day on Saturday because flipping an electrical switch would be too much work. Or they have their elevators programmed to go up and down automatically and their doors to open automatically because pressing the button would be too much work. And so... With this type of spirit, the Pharisees come at Jesus. Yet Jesus responds with a simple rebuke. Have you not read? He'll say this two times. He says it in verse 3 and in verse 5. His point being that the Jewish authorities understood the facts of the law, but they were missing the face of it. Jesus then takes their application of the law, their stringent, legalistic application, he extends it and makes them consider two groups, David and the priest. He alludes to this count in 1 Samuel 21 where David is on the run with his men from Saul. Saul is out to kill him. And he comes to the house of God and he asks the priest, 
do you have anything for us to eat? And the priest says, the only thing we have is the showbread, the bread of the presence, the holy bread that was only rightful for the priest to eat. But then they give the bread to David and his men. And the implication being that David is not condemned and the priests are not condemned for this activity. Jesus then goes on to a second example, saying that the priests themselves, when is their duty carried out? When is their work accomplished? Well, it is on the Sabbath. In verse 5, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Meaning, they work, they labor on the Sabbath, but they are considered innocent. But notice next that Jesus doesn't ground the innocence of his disciples in precedence. Meaning, he's not saying... People have done this kind of stuff before and it's not been a big deal. Why is this causing such a ruckus? No, Jesus says that the reason he and his disciples are innocent is because of him. Look at verse 6. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. The first thing that Jesus says is that he is the true presence of God. And this is what he means when he says something greater than the temple is here. He's making an outright claim that he is the embodied presence of God. And this, his presence, is exactly what changes everything about the understanding of the law and the Sabbath. See, it is the presence of the Son of God that signals not just a continuation of the law, but the fulfillment of it. We have here, because Jesus is a new temple, we have here a picture of a new covenant mediated by a new priest delivering a new law. The second thing that Jesus says about himself is that he desires mercy and not sacrifice. Here we have Jesus testifying to the posture of God toward man. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus has already said this. He says this back in chapter 9. But due to the hardness of the heart of the Pharisees, they fail to absorb it. And therefore, they misunderstand the law, they misunderstand God. Jesus is saying that God never expected for rigid adherence to the law to achieve righteousness for anyone. This was the fatal flaw of the Pharisees' teaching. And what becomes the fatal flaw of Judaism? The belief that religion, religious activity, piety could prompt God's favor. But here we have Jesus testifying to the opposite, that understood properly, it is the mercy of God that then creates our religious activity. And by saying that they condemned the guiltless, Jesus condemns their system, not just their misunderstanding of the law, but of their missing the very character of God himself. And so Jesus has said he's the temple. Jesus says he desires mercy and not sacrifice. And lastly, Jesus says that he has come to bring rest to his people. That's what he says in verse 8. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Notice the two elements that Jesus includes this statement. It's the same elements that we saw last week at the end of chapter 11. Jesus' authority is called to rest. This is the astounding claim that Jesus makes here. Remember, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he has in his mind the fulfillment of Daniel 7. 
He is the one who is given dominion over the nations. But then Jesus directly relates his claim of authority with his desire to provide rest. Here's the argument. He, the eternal son of God, has come to use his authority to give rest to people that don't deserve it. And thus the contrast is created between the man-made religion of the Pharisees and the true message of the kingdom. The Pharisees and their belief that strict adherence to the law would curry God's favor. They had taken the very words of God and warped them into something of their own design. See, a works-based religion, what the Pharisees had created, what it does is it puts man in the driver's seat instead of God. And while we, looking with 20-20 vision, hindsight's always 20-20, right? We might easily scoff at their foolishness, but aren't we prone to fall into the same thing? Works-based religion, or legalism as it's often caused, called is the opposite of Christianity. See, works-based religion desires sacrifice and not mercy. A works-based religion might parade around and call itself Christianity, but it lacks the key ingredient. It lacks Christ. Works-based religion is often subtle and can be easily misconstrued, but it is a lie that God will accept you based on your merits or your effort. See, what it does is it places you on a shifting scale of self-judgment. It forces you to look on your life and consider and judge all of your actions and deeds and left to wonder, do I measure up? When you seem to measure up, you're filled with self-assurance and self-righteousness. But when you look at your failings, you're filled with doubt and self-loathing. And this works-based religion keeps us tottering between those two poles, self-assurance and self-loathing. And it leaves you uncertain if you've ever done enough or it leaves you wrongly satisfied that you have. See, in this religion, in legalism, in works-based Christianity, in this system, you are both the judge and the defender of your own soul. You set your own standards, and then you compare yourself to the rubric of your own design. In other words, this isn't Christianity. It is self-idolatry. Have I done enough? Have I given enough? Have I read enough? Have I memorized enough? Have I done enough good? Have I bridled my tongue enough? Have I been loving to my neighbor enough? Have I raised my kids the right way enough? And on and on and on and on and on. And this, dear friends, is not Christianity. It is not rest. What Jesus offers is rest. And I can't say it any better than Hebrews 10, and so I'm not gonna try. Hebrews 10, 11, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 
For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And that last phrase is the essence of rest. This is Sabbath. Jesus using his authority to give you rest. Rest from your legalistic toil. Rest on his finished work. Relief. Jesus wants to be merciful to you, to free you from the religion of your own design. But be warned, this religion does not go away without a fight. And that is why Jesus wants to do good for you. Look in verse 9. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. Next, we find Jesus going into the synagogue, and he's being goaded into conflict. These religious authorities bring the conflict to his doorstep, daring him to take a step out of line. And they bring this man before him, and they ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they clearly have not taken to heart anything that Jesus has said up to this point. And Matthew records their clear intention at the the end of verse 10, so that they might accuse him. They want Jesus backed into a corner. Yet Jesus responds yet again with a simple but effective question. Which one of you would leave a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath? The obvious answer is no one. Of course, they would break the Sabbath to rescue the sheep. And then Jesus, knowing that he has an opportunity, he advances, stating simply, how much more value is man than sheep? And here is his conclusion. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then to demonstrate that he isn't just talk, Jesus heals the man. He restores his hand. And here we have the same conflict centered on a different subject. The conflict of strict adherence to the law and this new law that Jesus is inaugurating. And here is the distinction. This man-made religion prioritizes the law over man. And that's the undertone of his critique, that if the Pharisees had truly cared for the people they were entrusted with, they would seek to do them good. Jesus' point is that it was always the intention of the law of the Sabbath. It was always its purpose. It is lawful to heal on the Sabbath according to Jesus because the point of the Sabbath was always for the good of man. 
That's why in Mark's account of this interaction, Jesus is recorded as saying the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The point being, God gave us his law for our good. And the ground of Jesus' ethic here is God's posture towards man precedes his law. God is interested in the care and good of his people. But notice how the Pharisees failed to see this because of their rigid application of the law. Like before, they missed the very heart of God and therefore they missed the heart of Jesus. But thanks be to God that Jesus is not dependent on religious leaders to know his heart in order for him to show it. Stretch out your hand, he tells the man. And in the simple act of faith, the man finds healing. See, things aren't so different today. In man-made religion, we're treated as pawns. People are used in service to an end. It will use you for its own purposes. I mean, notice the concern of the Pharisees here. They use the man as means to condemn Jesus. Maybe this man had come to the synagogue for help. Maybe he had come searching for something or someone that could mend his hand, restore him to health. Or maybe he was just looking for help. But what he found was not blessing, but burden. He didn't find healing, he found hardship. Because he was told by the Pharisees that the law was like a ladder. But we're told by Paul that the law was never intended to be a ladder. It was intended to be an x-ray. And this is the predicament that we find ourselves in. This is the air that we breathe. This is Abilene. Our city, and we ourselves are prone to this too, are filled with bare bone religion that has no heart. People content with checking the boxes of religious activity. We ourselves, because it's so tempting, try to climb the ladder. It's clean, it's easy to drift into legalism because our spiritual walk becomes relegated to a series of tasks. I've got an app that I use that helps me stay on top of tasks and uh, sometimes I'll go a few days without, without checking it or checking off the boxes and I'll come back to it and I'll check off several at once. And you know what it'll do? It'll rain confetti down on my screen, celebrating my incredible productivity but it's the subtlety of legalism that makes it so tempting because it's camouflaged by such righteous deeds. How many of us feel a sense of pride when we think about our Bible reading? Or how many of us feel a stab of shame when we realize how far behind we are? Which of us doesn't at some point compare our lives to others, thinking how much more we have it together or how much less we have it together? How easy it is us to consider our church attendance and think, man, I've done good this year or man, I'm such a failure. We look at our lives, we see our, our increase or our lack of diligence and faithful and we think we've earned God's approval or God's disapproval. But we flip the equa- equation. See, the good works that God has prepared for us that we should walk in them They are for our good. This is what the Lord wants for us. Sure, in each of these areas, we're seeking to please God. 
But in each of these ways, God is seeking to do good for us. I wonder if you feel as though you're in the same boat. Maybe you're looking for some sort of rest, peace, and restoration. Maybe something's broken in your life and you need comfort and compassion. Religion, religious activity, won't give you what you seek. Maybe you've come to church and you've left feeling that there's too much for you to do. You've been led to believe that if you would pray more, read more, go to church more, serve others more, that your problems would begin to dissipate. But friends, there is no amount of doing that will truly give you what you're looking for. And even if it does for a moment, it's fleeting. But don't mishear me. Religious activity can provide you with invaluable good. That's why we encourage you to practice spiritual disciplines. We call you to read your Bibles, to pray regularly, to pray for one another, to practice family worship. We're even talking about instituting this new city catechism as a church. But the measure of the value of any religious activity, the amount of good that it actually accomplishes, is how much it leads you to the feet of Jesus. See, the difference is that religious activity by itself will leverage you like a tool, while Jesus will care for you as a sheep. Look to Jesus, for in him you will find someone who is truly interested in your good. The difference between man-made religion and Jesus is this. Man-made religion will place a load on your back and tell you to start walking to the top. But Jesus, he will cut the cords of your burden and reach down. And his invitation is the same to you as it is to this man. Stretch out your hand. And when you do, Jesus does what he wants to do. Jesus wants to give you hope. Look in verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Matthew closes this section with a contrast between the antagonistic Pharisees and Jesus who quietly slips out of town. They are, as Matthew points out, ready to destroy him. They want, his, they want him dead and they want his reputation run through the mud. And if this seems like an overreaction to his miraculous healing, it's just further evidence that this isn't about the activity of Jesus It's about the claims that Jesus is making. See, every move that Jesus makes, every word that comes out of Jesus' mouth is a threat to the rule, authority, and power of this man-made religion. Jesus isn't avoiding them because he's concerned for his life or he doesn't feel as though he can't take them. No, that's not Jesus' point. He is waiting for the right time. That's why he tells them, don't tell anyone about me. 
The time will come soon where Jesus will openly announce his condemnation on this perverted Judaism that is being lorded over the people, but not yet. Instead, the ministry of Jesus begins to sift, sifting between those of ethnic Israel who are rejecting him and those of true Israel that will accept him by faith. And all of this, Matthew tells us, is to fulfill what was said about his coming. This quote here is from Isaiah 42. And Isaiah tells us three things about this servant who is to come. Verse 18, behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. The first thing that Isaiah says about this servant is that he is the Messiah who is the Son of God. He is the pleasure of the Father. He is the one indwelt by the Spirit. The second thing that he says about this one is that he is the gentle Savior, not of Israel, but of the Gentiles. Notice the description of his demeanor. He isn't picking fights, he isn't trying to cause a ruckus, he isn't even trying to make a name for himself. Isaiah says he's gentle enough that he doesn't break bruised reeds, that he doesn't quench wicks that have very, life left, very little life left in them. I wonder if you think of Jesus this way, as gentle. As he's described his own heart in the previous chapter, gentle and lowly. I think sometimes we falsely assume that if we approach Jesus that if we approach him while he's got his arms crossed, his foot tapping with that reproachful look in his eye. Do you think Jesus is tired of hearing about your weakness and your fears? Do you think Jesus has grown weary of your constant failings and sins? Friends, I have good news. This is not Jesus. Jesus is gentle. He is patient, he is forbearing, he is forgiving, and he is kind. He has compassion for the weak, he has patience for the weary, he has encouragement for the downtrodden, and most importantly, he has love for the sinner. But if we're looking at this passage, there's a word in here that ought to send off alarm bells says he will proclaim justice not to Israel, not to his people, he says to the Gentiles. And this word that the ESV translates into Gentiles is the same word that we've seen many times in Matthew already. It's ethne, meaning nations. But why? Why are the nations, why are Gentiles, why are non-Israel mentioned here? Well, I think Matthew is tipping his hat a little bit here. For later in chapter 21, go ahead and flip there, Jesus will say this about himself. Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. 
See, what Matthew is telling us here, what Isaiah is pointing out, is that Jesus was not accepted by his kin. In fact, he was rejected by them. And then his gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, goes from the Jews to the nations. And this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. As we continue in Matthew, this contrast will become more and more stark as his own people reject him to the point where they actually accomplish what they set out to do. Remember the Pharisees said they want to destroy him. They pull it off. They kill Jesus. But in so doing, the message of the kingdom is then proclaimed to us. Gentiles. Those who become a part of God's people, not by ethnicity, not by works, but by grace through faith. Jesus is the gentle savior of the Gentiles. But let this be a warning to us. Notice what he says in verse 20. Jesus is gentle. He is kind. He's, he, he doesn't break bruised reeds. He doesn't quench smoldering wicks. But it is until he brings justice to victory. So Jesus is certainly the gentle savior of the Gentiles. But he's also the ter- terrible judge of the sinner. I want to read briefly from Isaiah 65. You don't have to turn there, but listen. Isaiah 65, verse 1. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. You hear the rebuke of this man-made religion. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. And notice what is said next. These are a smoke in my nostrils. A fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds." See, this is what man-made religion gets you. It gets you the judgment of God. So we must be careful to approach Jesus on his terms and not to force him to fit in our conceptions of what religion ought to be. And what Jesus' invitation is, it's so simple, it seems too easy. Come and rest on him. Come and stretch out your hand so that he might heal you. Because if we turn Christianity into something more, if we turn it into a works-based religion, here is the reality that we're seeing borne out in this passage and I think would be also something that would be true of us. That if we turn our Christianity into a works-based religion, the gospel will move on from us instead of moving on through us. And here is the great contrast that we see at the end of this passage. Jesus both 
has the strength to grind his enemies into powder, but also the gentleness to care for you as wounded sheep. Do you believe this is who Jesus is? Do you believe this is what Jesus wants? That he wants to be merciful for you, to you. That he wants to do good for you. And he wants to give you hope. He has proven himself truthful by his own coming, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And his invitation is the same to you as it was to the man with the withered hand. Stretch out your hand. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, you are so kind to us. We who have taken your word and we have have built a law around it. We who so easily drift into legalism and doubt that your word is true when it says that Jesus has completed sufficient sacrifice on our behalf. And that he does so for our good. Help us to simply believe. It is hard for us because we are so prone to to religion and religious activity as means of honoring or as means of earning your favor. But that is the opposite of what you have pronounced. You have pronounced your favor on us who are in Christ, and then you call us to obedience. Help us not to flip it the other way. Because in so doing, we lose the truth. We lose the gospel. But help us to keep the gospel knowing that Jesus has provided sufficient sacrifice on our behalf so that we might rest on his finished work. Lord Jesus, give us Sabbath. Amen.